Greetings, everyone. Good evening. We'll tonight cover the second part of Revelation, Revelation part two of Jesus Christ, our triumphant King. We'll begin with a word of prayer and then we'll begin the study. Father in heaven, we are so thankful that you have intervened in our lives, that you have opened our minds and hearts and that you have shown us that you have a great master plan that you are working out and that we can trust you to finish what you have begun, not only in our lives, but in the world at large. We thank you that we can be a part of your great plan. We thank you that we can have a role in proclaiming your gospel message to the world around us. We can rest secure in the assurances that you give us in this book of Revelation. We can be assured that no matter how difficult times may seem, that you are there with us and that you are helping us and that you will see your plan through. We ask that you would help us to understand the many intricacies of this book of Revelation and rest assured in the comfort that you give us in this book. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation part two. Jesus Christ, our triumphant King. First, just a quick reminder of where we are. John received the revelation from Jesus Christ while he was in exile on the island of Patmos, just off the west coast of Asia Minor, Turkey, in the Aegean Sea, the tiny little island of Patmos, just 17 square miles. This is what uh, Patmos looks like today, the current day view of Patmos. And here's a little wider view uh, with a white horse, no less. Off to the right is the cave where John received the revelation from Jesus Christ. This is the structure which has been built in front of the cave Another picture of that structure. And this is inside the structure and the cave is off to the right here. This is the cave where John was imprisoned in which he received this magnificent revelation from Jesus Christ. Also, we need to note that the letter that the the beginning of the book of Revelation, the letters to the churches were given to seven churches in Asia Minor, in Turkey. So you can see Ephesus uh, down at the lower left and going north and there to Smyrna and then to Pergam. And then we start circling back south, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and finally Laodicea. The seven churches of Revelation we're on a mail route. So here, here's the seven churches and here's the route. It's, it's sort of like a inverted U, uh, inverted letter U, beginning with the Ephesus, going to the north and then circling back to the south. Dana, can you turn it up? It can't hear.
the, the first thing that we want to look at about the messages to the seven churches is the identity of the angels. Each church, each of the seven churches had an angel. Who were these angels? Four major approaches to the angel's identity have been delineated. Some feel that they are unfallen angels who are guardians of the seven churches in much the same way that each individual Christian is thought to have a, a guardian angel. Uh, the thinking here is that the, the angels are the guardians of the, of the seven churches, that each church has a guardian angel. Others feel that the angels of the seven churches are the personified spirits of the churches. Others feel that they are men, not spiritual angels, but men, because because the, the word angel, angelos, can mean messenger, whether, whether a spiritual messenger or a human messenger. So some feel that the angels are men who are bishops or chief teachers who represent the churches. And others feel that they are men who are representatives of the churches, but are without a unique leadership function. So these are four views that have developed about the identity of the churches, of, of the angels of the churches. So let, let's take a look at each of these four possibilities. The complexity of the communication process is one thing that raises problems with this view, the view that they are actual unfallen angels. It presumes that Christ is sending a message to heavenly beings through John, an earthly agent, so that it may reach earthly churches through angelic representatives. So in other words, the message is given to John, and then he gives it to the angels, and then the angels give it to the churches. It, this seems like a rather convoluted way to deliver a message. Why not just give the message to John and have him give it to the churches? Or why not just give it to the angels and have them give it to the churches? Why go through this uh, uh, complicated process? An even more decisive consideration against this against this view lies in the sinful conduct, the sinful conduct of which these angels are accused. Most of the rebukes of chapters two and three are second person singular, messages that look first at the individual messengers and then presumably through them to the churches they represent. Unfallen angels do not sin, neither are they in need of repentance as these messengers along with their churches were. So that's another reason for thinking that they aren't unfallen angels. They aren't spiritual angels. Then we can look at another possibility that they are the personified spirits of the churches. Well, the use of separate symbols for angels, stars, and churches, lampstands, indicates that the two are separate objective realities, stars, uh, angels, lampstands, churches. 
to say that the angels are just the churches personified makes the stars and the lampstands represent the same thing. This is too strained to be the correct meaning. Are they church leaders? There is a drawback in identifying the angels as bishops or main leaders. The plurality of leadership in local churches of the New Testament era militates against singling out a single leader who could have borne the sole responsibility for the behavior of the whole church. No individual officer could have been directly responsible for so much. The fourth possibility is that angels refers to human messengers who in some sense are representatives of the churches, but who possess no unique leadership functions. There is a precedent for this. Two men named Epaphroditus and Epaphras, representing churches in Philippi and Colossae, went to Rome to offer help to prisoner Paul while he was under house arrest in Rome. It is quite probable that churches from seven cities in Asia, where John had served for about 30 years prior to the writing of Revelation, sent representatives to offer comparable assistance to him in his exile. So it's possible that each church had a representative that they sent to John on the island of Patmos and that he gave through Jesus Christ gave to him, John, messages to these seven messengers, these seven angels, to take back to the churches. Now, we need to take a look at the possibilities about what these messages represent, the messages to the seven churches. The most prominent viewpoints on the interpretation of the messages to the seven churches may be discussed under three headings, the prophetical, the historical prophetical, and the historical. The prophetical interpretation looks upon these seven messages as being entirely future in their significance. According to this view, there's absolutely no historical meaning in them. Their import is intended for assemblies yet to be established on the earth. So the assemblies are Jewish, according to this view, in their makeup and are not identified with the body of Christ. The seven will occupy their places on the earth during the eschatological day of the Lord. So this is entirely future. Hey, Dana, I'm so sorry to interrupt and bother you. I just wanted to make sure it's being recorded. It, we got some, it's kind of flashing the recording. Oh, um, well, maybe maybe it uh, stopped recording when I, when I adjusted the volume. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure. Well, just wanted to make sure it's well, still recording. See, the, 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 when I look at the possibilities for the buttons it says stop recording so that should be okay yep you're good i'm sorry yep that you're mean good it's still recording. i just wanted to make sure we get this it's really good so i want to make sure we got it thank you okay. sorry well thank you for checking the prophetical interpretation that i was talking about it looks upon these seven messages as, as being entirely future in their significance the, the the man who made this view popular was a man named ew bullinger uh, he is a 
he was, and he's no longer living, but he was a, a hyper-dispensationalist. And if you're not sure what a hyper-dispensationalist is, I can explain that to you, but I, I won't take time to do it right now. But one of the things that a hyper-dispensationalist does is he sees a, he, he sees a, a, a split between the Jewish church and the Gentile church. And so he, he sees the, the Gentile church as being raptured and then continuing to be a Jewish church on into the eschatological day of the Lord. Advocates of this view contend that chapters two and three relate to the future, just as do the portions beginning with chapter four. So they think that all of the book of Revelation relates to the future. They also contend that no churches existed in some of the seven cities at the time Revelation was written. If no church existed at the time of the book's composition, it stands to reason that one, that one will exist in the future day, it is said. So that's one of the arguments that they try to put forward to say that, well, in some of these cities, there weren't even churches at the time Revelation was written. So it's all future. This is done particularly in relation to the church at Thyatira. The basis of the assumption being statements by Tertullian, one of the church fathers, and by Epiphanius. It should be observed, however, that historical evidence to disprove the existence of this church is scanty. Tertullian does not agree with the truthfulness of this, of this assertion, but he was merely citing the claims of certain sects. Epiphanius too was answering unorthodox objections to the genuineness of Revelation. The absurdity of this position is readily seen when, when one recollects the evidence of Revelation itself. The Apostle John would not have assumed as fact a thing known to be erroneous. He wouldn't have talked about churches that didn't exist in his day. The conclusion must be that the seven churches of Asia Minor were real churches. They existed as actual historical entities in a province of Roman Asia in the closing decades of the first century. Evidence fails to support the prophetic view. Therefore, the histori historicity of these churches must be admitted as is normal in the case of such literature. And the messages to them cannot be assigned to the future day of the Lord in their interpretation. So now let's look at the historical prophetical. This approach acknowledges the historical existence of the first century churches addressed in the messages, but at the same time assigns a prophetic significance to them. This prophetic feature reportedly outlines the seven periods of church history from the time of composition to the coming of Christ. Some advocates of this theory even go so far as to say that the prophetic interpretation overshadows the historical importance. Not all of them say that, but some of them do. In, in my early years as a Christian, uh, I was associated with churches who placed great emphasis on church errors as defined by the seven churches of the book of Revelation. So I was very much steeped in this view. One reason advanced in support of the historical prophetic interpretation lies in the difference and even supposed moral condition, even opposed moral conditions found 
in the various churches. So varied are the descriptions of the different churches, these could not, it is said, characterize the state of the church in general at that time or at any other time. So in other words, the people who hold this historical or prophetical view believe that the conditions in the, in the seven churches are so different that they could not possibly be all extant at one time, that they had to be consecutive, consecutive church eras. Such reasoning rests upon the presupposition that each description characterizes the whole body of professing Christians at a given moment. This is nowhere stated, however. It is not implied that the principal virtues or faults of one church are meant as the main characteristics of others. For example, advice that has urgent application in Laodicea may represent one of the lesser needs in Philadelphia and elsewhere. There is nothing in the passages to preclude their application to different local congregations existing simultaneously in the last decade of the first century, or for that matter, any, in any other period. It is further argued that the contents of the seven messages hint at their prophetic significance. By this is meant the language of the two chapters relating to the second advent, which implies that the latter churches or last church continue up to the time of Christ's second coming. Yet there are possible references to Christ's coming in two of the first three messages, and a clear reference to his coming as early as the fourth message. In fact, one might easily conclude from the language utilized that Christ's coming was as near for the first church, Ephesus, as for the last, Laodicea. There is also the progressive development of evil portrayed in these messages. It's indicative, it is thought, to the, of their prophetic character. Yet one cannot fully agree with this trend when he finds, for example, in Sardis, one of the two worst spiritual states, and in Philadelphia, one of the two best spiritual states. To, to describe accurately the growing failure in the church, Philadelphia should not have been placed early. Philadelphia should have been placed early in chapter two, certainly before Sardis and not vice versa, if declining spiritual states were a mark of these two chapters. So you can't find in the seven churches of Revelation a clearly defined progressive development of evil. The church is getting worse and worse and worse. Sometimes they get better, Sometimes they get worse. So there isn't a clear trend as the proponents of this view would have you believe. Probably the most widely used piece of evidence in favor of the historical prophetical approach is the theory of a correspondence between seven periods of church history and the seven messages. A proponent of the view, Craven, comments that proof that the seven churches are in their order representative of the predominant characteristics of the church in the seven periods of her history is based entirely on observation of history. So it's not based on scripture telling us that that is the case. It is based on an observation of history and seeing patterns. In, in the terminology of Harry Ironside, the key that fit the lock and opened up the explanation of the messages was the noticed similarity between them 
and the development of church history. Many other expositors from a wide assortment of backgrounds have flocked to the opinion that a correspondence between church history and these seven messages exists. This view was especially popular in, in, the, in the 19th century, in the 1800s, but there are still many today who hold this view. In spite of the abundance of impressive voices to speak in favor of the correlation of the passage with church history, there comes, however, the frequent question, does it really fit? One may succeed in bringing out some ingeniously conceived points of harmony, but they always have a somewhat arbitrary character. This arbitrary character can be seen by examining a standard work on church history, Schaff, a writer on church history, in speaking of the periods of church history notes, in regard to the number and length of periods, there is indeed no unanimity. He then goes on to observe that if any general agreement exists, it is in respect to a threefold division into ancient, medieval, and modern periods. If a further breakdown is desired, Schaff proposes a division of each of the three into three subdivisions, resulting in nine, not seven periods of church history. So there are not seven clear-cut periods of church history that everybody can agree on. The same diversity of opinion that exists among church historians is found in the writings of expositors of the historical prophetical school. Example, to illustrate the point. The message to Sardis has been variously interpreted in its prophetic meaning. Craven makes this the period blending with spiritual clensions of the preceding period and extending through the Dark Ages to the Reformation. So he sees it as the era leading up to the Reformation. Conradi, on the other hand, refers the Sardian message not to the pre-Reformation church, but to the church of the Reformation itself. He says that surely Christ did not overlook this second greatest event in human history, he's talking about the Reformation, when he gave the forecast to the seven churches but pointed it out, as we shall see very fittingly in the Sardis state. So he thinks that the Sardis church represents the church of the Reformation. One can apparently make the words of Sardis fit to, to Sardis to fit either of the two epics, depending on whether he emphasizes the good features regarding the church or the bad. The inevitable course in this case must be to apply the term arbitrary to such a method of interpretation. Can it be honestly said that this is the key which fits the lock and opens up the explanation of the messages? When in reality, the key is supposedly defined. The shape of the key varies radically from one interpreter to the next. And so who is to say what finally, is to say finally what the key is? There is nothing approaching to a general consensus among those who hold this view. Each one has his own timeline his own distribution of the seven church eras. It would appear that this historical prophetical system is beset by difficulties and unsupported by any conclusive evidence. So let's take a look at the historical view. This is the viewpoint that takes Christ's words as strictly appropriate to the historical situations of seven first century churches of Asia Minor. It does not deny that these seven represent spiritual states, 
that characterized local churches of all locations and at all times within the Christian era. But it does deny that a given spiritual state is more prevalent at one time than it is at another. In other words, the symbolic states are simultaneous rather than consecutive in their coverage of the church age. The supports for the historical view may be summed up as follows. The whole context of Revelation necessitates this interpretation. It is foundational in understanding this book to recognize its emphasis upon the imminency of Christ's return. And the purely historical approach is the only one that allows for this meaning, along with maintaining the historical existence of the seven churches. The historical prophetical view cannot make such a claim because a consistent application of its interpretation would mean that Christ's coming is imminent for only one of the churches, the last. This would be the only one pictured prophetically for which Christ's coming was an any moment expectation. On the contrary, however, there are definite references to his imminent return in the fourth and sixth messages and possible references in the first, third, and fifth messages. So we cannot claim that only the last church, only for the last church, Laodicea, was the coming of Christ imminent. If the historical prophetical be the correct viewpoint, Christ would be guilty of deceiving those other churches, for his coming could not possibly take place within their periods of church history. Philadelphia, for example, was given a false hope of deliverance as an encouragement in persecution, because Christ's coming could not occur until the Laodicean period. The folly of accusing Christ of such moral conduct is apparent. And consequently, the inability of the historical prophetical approach in allowing for the doctrine of imminence throughout the church age must be limited. The realization must be that Christ's return was just as much a possibility for the Ephesians as it was for the Laodiceans. This is possible when the things that are are represented by seven simultaneous church pictures rather than seven successive ones. A second reason for adopting the historical point of view lies in the absence of any word of scripture to indicate an additional prophetic outlook in these two chapters. Walbert agrees that no such statement is to be found when he says the prophetic interpretation of the messages to the seven churches is a deduction from the content, not from the explicit statement of the passage. The, the passage does not tell us that we should see the messages to the churches in that way. Customarily, when the Bible makes a declaration regarding the future, there is no room for doubt as to its character as prophecy. There are no such pointers in the messages to the seven churches. As a third factor to support the historical interpretation, attention is called to the kind of literature in Revelation 2 and 3. This is normal epistolary style, quite similar to the epistles of Paul and other New Testament writers. In these other writings, no, no serious thought is ever given to finding a typical prophetical meaning in a passage that manifestly deals with an historical situation in the city or cities addressed. Instead, the words are interpreted in light of the historical context. In other words, what did they mean to the first century recipients of Asia Minor? 
Understanding the normal method of interpreting epistolary literature to be historical then, one concludes that there is this additional factor in favor of the historical viewpoint. The historical interpretation encourages a sound application of the grammatical historical method of interpretation to the messages, such as might not be possible if the interpreter is diverted by his consideration of prophetic details. These two chapters are rich in truth for local congregations throughout this age, throughout the church age, when understood in the light of the surroundings, and we would do well to make full and proper use of them. The main bulk of the book of Revelation, of course, has to do with seven seals, and then seven trumpets, and finally seven bowl or vile judgments, also known as the seven last plagues. So we'll take a look first at the seals. The first seal, also known as the, the rider on the white horse, uh, religious deception. The second seal, the red horse, the rider on the red horse, war. The third seal, a rider on the black horse, famine. The fourth seal, the Pale rider on the pale horse, pestilence. The fifth seal, persecution and martyrdom. The sixth seal, the heavenly signs. And then the seventh seal is where we begin to see the seven trumpets. So the seventh seal is divided into seven, seven trumpets. So there's a, a telescoping effect here. The seventh seal brings us to the seven trumpets seventh seal is made up of seven trumpets, and then the seventh trumpet, as we will see, is made up of the seven full judgments, the seven last plagues. So in the seven trumpets that make up that seventh seal, the first trumpet, hail, fire, and blood cast on land, one-third one is burned. The second trumpet, burning, a burning mountain is cast into the sea, and one-third is bloodied, the third trumpet, burning stars fall on rivers, one-third embittered, one-third of the fresh water is embittered. The fourth trumpet, the sun, moon, and stars, one-third are darkened. The fifth trumpet, which is also called the first woe, with the, with the sounding of the fifth trumpet, demons from the abyss are released. Sounding of the sixth trumpet, the second woe, we see an invasion from the east, and one third of mankind is killed. This, this is interesting because uh, one third of mankind is killed in the sixth trumpet. Prior to that, in the fourth seal, the, the pale horse, the rider on the pale horse, one fourth of mankind was killed. So one fourth is killed during the fourth seal, the rider on the pale horse. So of the remaining three fourths, another third are killed during the sixth trumpet. So that means that the population of the earth is cut in half. And the those who would, would interpret Revelation as either being all fulfilled in 70 AD 
or in some historical way have to have to uh, say that these statements about one fourth being killed and then one third being killed really don't mean what they say. They have to find some way to explain those statements away. With the seventh, seventh trumpet, we come to the seven bold judgments or vile judgments. The seventh trumpet is also called the third woe. And the proclamation is made that the kingdom of this world becomes the kingdom of God. But as a part of that, there, that seventh trumpet, there is a, a releasing of these seven bold judgments, these seven last plagues. First bold judgment is, is affected, affects the earth, is the area that is affected. Sores on the beast's worshipers, as the worship of the beast uh, have sores. The second bold judgment is poured out upon the sea, and we have blood and death. The third bold judgment is poured on the rivers and springs, and the peoples of the earth have blood to drink. Many of these bold judgments are reminiscent of what we see in the plagues back in Egypt. Just before Israel came out of Egypt at the first Passover. The fourth bold judgment affects the sun. Burning heat is produced. The fifth bold judgment, the beast's throne is affected. And there is palpable darkness, darkness that you can feel. Remember that also from the plagues upon Egypt. The sixth bold judgment affects the Euphrates River. We see a gathering for battle. And the seventh bold judgment is poured out on the air. And we see lightnings and thunderings and the earthquake shattering the great city. But as we look at these main elements of Book of Revelation, we see that there are gaps. And in these gaps are inserted inset chapters. But before we take a look at that, I want to, I want to look at something else here. Remember that when I talked about the seven seals, particularly the first seal, the white horse. I said that the rider on the white horse represents religious deception. Now, some looking at this will say, well, the rider on the white horse, surely that must be Jesus. I mean, after all, doesn't Revelation chapter 19 describe Jesus, depict Jesus as coming on a white horse? Surely this, this rider on the white horse must be Jesus. How can you say that this represents religious deception? Well, there's something that I want you to notice about these two riders on the white horse. When we look at the description of Jesus in chapter 19 of Revelation, we, we read this, and I saw heaven open and behold a white horse that he that sat upon him was called faithful, true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, 
and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Notice that when Jesus returns upon a white horse, he is armed with a sword. Now, let's look at that other rider on the white horse back in Revelation chapter 6. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. Notice that he is not armed with a sword. He is armed with a bow. What else does the Bible have to say about the bow? Psalm 78, 57. But turned back and dealt unfaithfully like their fathers. They turned aside like a deceitful bow. And also in Hosea chapter 7, verse 16, they return, but not to the Most High. They are like a deceitful bow. So as portrayed in the Bible, the bow is, is a deceitful weapon in the sense that you can shoot a bow at someone from a distance. You can shoot a bow from hiding. Whereas if you have a, a sword with which to go into battle, you have to face the enemy head on. So the bow is regarded as a deceitful weapon. So you can see that these, this rider on the white horse in Revelation chapter 6 is not the same as the rider on the white horse in chapter 19. Satan is the great counterfeiter. He is someone who makes things look good, who likes to make things look good, even though they are in reality evil. You will also find that there are parallels between the seals in the book of Revelation and the information that, that is given to us in the Olivet Discourse, recorded in Matthew chapter 24, Mark chapter 13, Luke chapter 21. So when we compare these side by side, we see that the first seal does indeed represent religious deception, because that is something that is talked about in Matthew 24. Many shall come in my name, saying that I am the Christ. Then we go through the other seals. The second seal, war, well, Matthew describes that. The third seal, famine, Matthew describes that. The fourth seal, pestilence, disease epidemics, Matthew describes that. The fifth seal, persecution, martyrdom, Matthew describes that. 
And then finally, the heavenly signs of the sixth seal, Matthew also describes that. So there, there are these parallels. So I think it's quite conclusive that the first seal in the book of Revelation, the rider on the white horse, represents religious deception. Now, I, I was saying before that there are gaps in these main elements of Revelation, the, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven bowls. At, at certain points, there are gaps between these descriptions. So we have inset chapters. And the inset chapter is like a sidebar, an excursus, a temporary departure from the main story flow. Within the book of Revelation, there are inset chapters, chapters that do not follow the time sequence established by the rest of the book. They explain in more detail the events that are necessary to understand more fully what is happening in time sequence. So the insets are historical digressions that give greater clarity to the revelation. In Revelation 6.12, we find the sixth seal is opened. But the seventh seal is not opened until Revelation 8.1. So there's a, there's a gap in there in which an inset is inserted a whole chapter and a half later. There's a, there's a gap between these, the sixth seal and the seventh seal. But between these occurrences is a description of an event that is a necessary digression so that we will understand what is happening to a group of people during some of the events that have already been prophetically described. In the case of chapter 7, the digression is very close to being within the sequence of events, but it is still a digression, still an inset chapter. These people are pictured as standing before the throne of God. So in this inset, we see the 144,000, and we see uh, an innumerable multitude, it's called. It is figuratively expressed so that we will understand that they are converted. These are people who are converted, people who come to Christ during the millennium, or excuse me, during the tribulation. They will not actually stand before his throne until the resurrection. So they don't all come before the throne at one time. They don't all get converted at one time during the, this tribulation. But representative, symbolically, we're being told that they come before God, that they assemble before him. This shows that the material in chapter 7 is out of time sequence with the material before and after. So it's an aside. It's explaining something to us. That these people will come to Christ, come to salvation during the tribulation. Revelation 7, 1 through 8 describes 144,000. Then verse 9 begins with after these things. This is simply a time marker in John's vision not in prophetic time. It means afterward, later, John saw an innumerable multitude. The Greek does not say that the events of Revelation 7, 9 through 17 immediately follow or that they are part of the preceding information, only that John received this information after their previous information. Perhaps it could follow right after, but the Greek does not require it. John says no one could number this multitude. Why? Notice that this multitude is comprised of all nations, tribes, and peoples, and tongues. That would seem to be a great many people. 
the context indicates a large number, not just an indeterminate one. Revelation 3.21, written directly to Laodicea, says that God grants overcomers the reward of sitting with him on his throne. Thus, they have been, they have qualified to be in the first resurrection, having been judged worthy now. We see that whether we die in Christ or we're still alive when he returns, we are changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, as first fruits. Those who are converted and martyred during the tribulation will also have an opportunity to rule with him from his throne. And just a word about the first resurrection. We normally think of two resurrections, a first resurrection occurring before the millennium and a second resurrection occurring after the millennium. But within the rubric of the pre-tribulation rapture, it is generally recognized that even though there's just one first resurrection, there are different phases of that resurrection. And it is generally thought that the first phase of that resurrection occurs at the time of the, of the rapture, when those who are dead in Christ and those who are living at the time are resurrected and they receive their, their resurrection bodies. But then the other people who are converted during the tribulation, they don't receive their resurrection bodies until Christ returns, Christ's second coming. So there's just one first resurrection, but it is generally thought within the rubric of the, of the pre-tribulation rapture that there are different phases of that first resurrection. So I hope that provides some understanding of that. Revelation 11 is inset material. The only possible period of time when the two witnesses could testify is during the three and a half years that precede Christ's return, the time of the tribulation day of the Lord. Most of this period of time has already been covered by chapters six, fifth and six seals, and eight and nine, the, the, tribulate, the trumpet plays. Chapter 11 clarifies what has already occurred in the narrative, as during how people can possibly be converted during the tribulation day of the Lord. The answer is that they are hearing a message thundered by the two witnesses. Revelation 7, 9 through 17 suggests that by their preaching, an innumerable multitude will be converted. The information is given in a digression, an inset chapter, from the main story flow. Inset chapters clarify what is happening within the time sequence. All the inset chapters are introduced in a significant way, by an angel coming down from heaven, or a spectacular, unusual vision of someone or something, such as a woman clothed with the sun, moon, and stars, or a beast rising out of the ocean. Chapter 11, however, does not begin this way because it is not the beginning of the inset. The inset actually begins in Revelation 10:1, where the spectacular vision occurs. Chapter 10 does not follow chapter 9, 
in time sequence any more than the material in chapter 11 does. Chapter 11 merely continues the vision begun in chapter 10. Chapter 12 is another inset chapter in which John sees another wondrous vision. It's events do not follow those in chapter 11 at all. Chapter 11 ends with the blowing of the seventh trumpet and the announcing of the return of Jesus Christ, while chapter 12 suddenly introduces a brand new vision. Rather, chapter 12 is a highly condensed history of the true church within Israel, the woman. The nation of Israel is symbolically referred to throughout the chapter. It should be pointed out and observed that the New Testament means a sharp, maintains a sharp distinction between Israel and the church. In verse one, Israel is described as a woman clothed with the sun and moon and wearing a crown of stars. Tying the symbols to Joseph's dream in Genesis 37 confirms the woman's identity. In the next verse, Israel is the woman about to give birth. God begins the record all the way back in, time, in the time of Jacob. In Genesis 37, 9, Joseph dreams that the sun, moon, and stars all bow down to him. Revelation 12, 1 borrows from that vision to help us understand that the true church has its roots in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The very first Christians were Jews, then later Gentile believers were grafted into Israel. But the church's real roots are in heaven, hence the sun, moon, and stars. God is figuratively, symbolically pointing in the direction of the origins of the true church. Chapter 12 unfolds a highly condensed history of God's work to bring the Messiah into the world. It takes us through the rebellion of Hillel, who became Satan, and Jesus Christ being born of the woman. I, I put in that word Hillel because, Hillel because that is the actual Hebrew word that we find in Isaiah 14. Uh, in the King James Version, it talks about Lucifer, but Lucifer is actually a, a word of, of Latin origin that was used later on. The actual Hebrew word is Hillel. Hillel. In verses three and four, the child is about to, that she is about to bear is the focus of the great red dragons, Satan's murderous intent. Verse five identifies her child as the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the one born to rule all nations. We find the dragon attempting and eventually succeeding in killing the child. He tries to end the child's life at the time of Herod the Great. And of course, later on, when Jesus Christ is an adult, he is crucified. This child who is, of course, Jesus Christ. However, he is resurrected, so no really serious damage occurs to the child born of a woman, Israel. In verse six, the woman who gave birth to Christ, Israel, leads into a wilderness to a place God prepared for her. It's interesting to note that those who seek to follow God or are even in any way associated with him down through history have often been persecuted to such an extent that they are driven from society.
I'm hearing some noise, uh, so make sure that you're make sure that you're muted. History has witnessed numerous Jewish pogroms. It has also seen the church through the Middle Ages, through the Inquisitions, Crusades, and Tribulations of times of the times where the church hid in the mountains, hills, and alpine valleys of Central Europe. Perhaps we'll look at some of that history when we get into church history. Then in verses 7 through 12, the narrative digresses somewhat, showing us something yet to occur, a war in heaven between Satan and his demons and Michael and the angels. Note that verses 7 through 9 Note that by verses 7 through 9, time has progressed to the end when God throws Satan and his demons out of heaven for good. Verses 10 through 11 allude to the church by mentioning people overcoming the dragon by the blood of the Lamb. There will indeed be great rejoicing when the tempter of the brethren, the accuser of the brethren, is finally put down for good. That will conclude our part two of the book of Revelation. And I'm still not done, so there's going to be a part three and perhaps probably a part four. <laughs> so let's uh, close with a word of prayer and then we'll open it up for discussion and questions. Father in heaven, we do thank you, not only for the fact that you have had a great plan that you're working on down through history, but that you have revealed many aspects of that plan to us so that we can have comfort, we can have assurance as we see your plan unfolding. And we see that you will yet proclaim the gospel to all of those that you have chosen to be called and become part of your eternal family. We are grateful that we have the opportunity to be part of your eternal family. And we are so thankful that you have granted us the privilege of sharing that precious message of the gospel with the others that you will yet call into your eternal family. We thank you for this. Ask that you would help us to be comforted and strengthened by it, and that you would help us to live faithful lives as we move towards that day when your son will return to this earth and establish his kingdom over all the earth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.